Hi everyone, just a quick message before we start today's episode. The generosity of our members and friends is life-changing for young investigators, lung patients, and patient families. Donations made to the ATS will help to support our mission to fund emerging investigators in cutting-edge research, sustain education and public health initiatives, and reduce health disparities to advance worldwide respiratory health. If you would like to make a contribution to the ATS to help support our mission, please visit thoracic.org go slash donate. That's thoracic.org go slash donate. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is John Fleeton and I'm a professor of medicine at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. And today I'm joined by Dr. Goon Tran, uh, who's the first author of a paper entitled The Effect of Continuous Positive Airway Pressure on Arrhythmia in Atrial Fibrillation and Sleep Apnea, a randomized controlled trial. And this was recently published in the Blue Journal. Uh, Dr. Tron is an ear, nose and throat specialist at Oslo University in Norway. Now, before we come to your trial, can we discuss atrial fibrillation? How common is it? What are the modifiable risk factors and the potential medical consequences? Yes, um, thank you for um, the invitation. Atrial fibrillation uh, is the most common heart rhythm disturbance and has a prevalence of around 3% and is even more prevalent in the older population. And uh, atrial fibrillation is associated with increased uh, risk of stroke, heart failure, and mortality with tremendous clinical and socioeconomic implications. And a marked rise in the prevalence of atrial fibrillation is expected in coming years. So in order to reduce the increasing atrial fibrillation burden worldwide, we need to take a closer look at the risk factors of atrial fibrillation. Because atrial fibrillation almost never comes alone. And um, lone atrial fibrillation does hardly exist in daily clinical practice. And long before you have the first episode of atrial fibrillation, risk factors and comorbidities are already present, setting the stage for atrial remodeling to occur due to fibrosis and inflammation. And there are non-modifiable risk factors like male gender and genetic background, but the most important non-modifiable risk factor is advancing age. And then you have a huge number of modifiable risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, coronary artery disease, alcohol, smoking, caffeine, physical inactivity, but also to some degree excessive exercise and obesity, and what we are going to talk about today, obstructive sleep apnea. Okay, so how common is atrial fibrillation in patients with obstructive sleep apnea? And what are the potential pathophysiological mechanisms? Obstructive sleep apnea is very common in patients with atrial fibrillation. Around 50% have moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea. So obstructive sleep apnea seems more prevalent in atrial fibrillation patients than in the general population, suggesting that OSA might trigger atrial fibrillation. And there are multiple 
pathophysiological mechanisms that we think could trigger atrial fibrillation, including intermittent hypoxia, negative um, intrathoracic pressure swings, leading to atrial stretch, systemic inflammation, and autonomic nervous system fluctuations. Uh, however, it's important to say that the link between atrial fibrillation and obstructive sleep apnea is uh, no more than an association based on observational trials and in the absence of large prospective cohorts and randomized interventional treatment trials, a causal relationship is yet to be proven. So that leads very nicely to your trial. What, what were the objectives of your trial? The big question is, is there a benefit of CPAP therapy in patients with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation and obstructive sleep apnea? And if there is a benefit, what does that benefit look like? Is it purely symptomatic or could CPAP treatment in patients with atrial fibrillation reduce the burden of atrial fibrillation? So our objective in this trial was to determine the effect of CPAP treatment on the burden of atrial fibrillation. And the burden was measured by implantable loop recorders. So we had continuous monitoring of heart rhythm. So can you outline the trial design, the, the patient selection, uh, methodology, and the outcomes? We conducted a randomized controlled trial at two university hospitals in Norway. Uh, we included adults with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation and sleep apnea with AHI 15 and above. So we had a very clear phenotype, paroxysmal atrial fibrillation and moderate to severe sleep apnea. Uh, now, this study was conducted right after the surprising results from the SURVE-HF trial. So to be on the safe side, we excluded patients with heart failure. And uh, then eligible patients underwent respiratory polygraphy two nights at home. Patients diagnosed with the moderate to severe sleep apnea were invited to undergo a CPAP tolerance test. And if they were CPAP compliant, that means if they used CPAP more than four hours per night for a week, they could be included in the study and have a loop recorder implanted. And after one month of baseline recordings of loop recorded data, patients were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to either CPAP or control and followed for five months before catheter ablation took place. And um, the primary endpoint was the difference in change of atrial fibrillation burden from baseline to the last three months of the intervention period as measured by the loop recorder. And secondary outcomes were changes in quality of life and daytime sleepiness. And what were your primary findings? Uh, the primary findings of uh, our trial were that CPAP therapy did not result in a statistically significant reduction in the time in atrial fibrillation compared to usual care alone. So the primary endpoint was neutral. Despite effectively getting the sleep apnea way down, the AHI goes from 27 to 2.3, so the respiratory physiology is much better, but it did not translate in terms of reducing the atrial fibrillation burden. And looking at our subgroup analysis, if you look at the proportion of patients with CPAP use, more than four hours a night and compare them to usage less than four hours a night, there was no subgroup effect. So good adherence to CPAP did not influence the results. 
And looking at our secondary endpoints, CPAP treatment did not improve daytime sleepiness or quality of life beyond the benefits achieved with usual care alone. And in post-talk analysis, CPAP did not reduce the number of episodes and it not, did not reduce the duration of atrial fibrillation episodes. Now, this is one of the first or is the first trial in, in this area. Uh, what are the other major strengths that you would like to highlight? I want to emphasize uh, three major strengths. Um, first, the use of implantable loop recorders for the continuous monitoring of atrial fibrillation burden. The small device is placed just under the skin of your chest during a minor surgery and records your heart rhythm continuously for up to three years. And it can capture information that a standard ECG or halter monitor may miss. And two, our study had the two-night polygraphy performed, and the recordings were of good quality, and one single sleep specialist scored all the scorings. And um, in addition, a random selection of 20 sleep studies were scored by another sleep specialist to assess inter-observer reliability of AHI, which was very high. And the last, uh, we have used the CFAP run-in period in order to reduce dropouts and crossovers. And we had only one dropout, and there were only two crossovers in each arm. Why do you think CPAP had no effect on quality of life and daytime sleepiness in this group of patients, uh, compared to other studies which seem to have a, a poorer adherence uh, to CPAP? Well, that's a very good question and a difficult one to answer. The average use of CPAP in our study was 4.4 hours, and the baseline effort score was below 8 and if you compare the adherence with, for example, the SAVE study, the adherence in the SAVE study was a bit lower, 3.3 uh, hours per night. And they had a similar baseline effort score of 7.4, but still they did find that CPAP significantly reduced daytime sleepiness and improved quality of life. So how come we did not find similar results? Well, the SAVE study included more than 2,700 patients so it was a much larger trial, so that could be one reason. And they also had a longer follow-up, which could be another reason. Uh, so we can only speculate if our results would be different if the baseline effort was higher to begin with in a larger population with longer follow-up. But I also want to mention that Sean Capels and Vernon Somers did a small randomized controlled trial on the recurrence of atrial fibrillation after cardioversion in patients with sleep apnea and they found no impact of CPAP on atrial fibrillation recurrence and no impact of quality of life and daytime sleepiness. And in that study, the adherence was even higher, 6.2 hours, but only 25 patients were randomized. So we are talking a very small population, but they still had similar results as us in a population of patients with atrial fibrillation. Now, 108 patients were available for the primary analysis. Do you think your trial was potentially underpowered? The power calculation was difficult due to sparse data available on baseline burden of atrial fibrillation at the time of study conduction. So we did overestimate the burden of atrial fibrillation, and this led to an overly optimistic estimation of the required sample size. But it's important to note that an atrial fibrillation burden of 5% is considerable compared to the burden observed in more recent studies. And we observed no trend towards a positive effect of CPAP treatment. And the study was powered to detect a 
clinical and meaningful benefit. So it doesn't seem that the negative findings was due to lack of power or due to short follow-up. But again, larger randomized controlled trials need to confirm this. But uh, if you have uh, yeah, to say include 2000 patients in order to demonstrate the significant effect of CPAP, I'm not so sure how clinically meaningful that effect is. Are there any other potential limitations to your trial that you'd like to raise? The trial had an open label design and the lack of blinding is always a limitation in interventional trials. The lack of blinding may have introduced bias affecting the self-reported endpoints. However, the bias was uh, would more likely favor the active treatment group, particularly with regard to quality of life. However, this outcome was not improved in our study. Now, there were more serious adverse effects in the CPAP-treated group. Can you describe these? And do you think any of them were directly attributable to the CPAP treatment? Yes, the number of serious adverse events was higher in the CPAP group than in the control group. Seven events occurred in the CPAP group and two events occurred in the control group. Uh, now, most of them were unlikely to be related to the intervention. However, some of them could be related to CPAP treatment. And there were two patients in the CPAP group that needed pacemaker implantation due to prolonged pauses with syncope. And one patient was hospitalized due to syncope. So looking back at the unexpected findings in the SurveyChef trial, we should consider the possibility that CPAP treatment could be associated with reduced cardiac output. But uh, the numbers are too small to make any correlations to treatment allocation. So we cannot conclude, but these findings should be a reminder for future trials to perform a careful monitoring of these patients. Now, your results sit within a wider context of other recent disappointing results from RCTs in patients with obstructive sleep apnea where CPAP has failed to improve the primary cardiovascular endpoints. Do you think it's going to be feasible in the future to do additional studies, including sleepy patients who are probably the most likely to benefit from CPAP treatment? Yes, um, there are, of course, some ethical aspects of including these patients. But yes, I would say that the next step now is that we have to include the sleepy patient in order to be able to show any effect of positive airway pressure on hard cardiovascular endpoints. And uh, probably you have to exclude drowsy drivers and professional drivers with excessive sleepiness. Now, there's a second phase to this trial. Can you describe that? And, and when do you expect the results to be available? Catheter ablation was performed in 83 patients, and they were followed for 12 months post-ablation in the same randomized groups as in phase one of the study. And the results from phase two of this trial have been published in the form of an abstract and um, demonstrated that, as expected, catheter ablation reduced the burden of atrial fibrillation, but CPAP treatment had no additional effect on the recurrence of atrial fibrillation compared to usual care alone. So again, disappointing results. Okay. Look forward to seeing the, the final results of that. 42% of your initial group of patients with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation had moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea. Do you think all patients with atrial fibrillation should be tested for obstructive sleep apnea? The short answer to that is uh, no. 
But if you look at the European guidelines for atrial fibrillation, it says that optimal management for obstructive sleep apnea may be considered but uh, the key question is whether positive airway pressure treatment of obstructive sleep apnea benefits patients with atrial fibrillation. It's not reasonable to recommend patients. It is reasonable to recommend patients with symptomatic uh, obstructive sleep apnea, but uh, not um, universal screening for obstructive sleep apnea because there's no definitive evidence that treating obstructive sleep apnea prevents atrial fibrillation recurrence. Do you have any final points you'd like to emphasize about your trial? Yeah, last, I would like to emphasize uh, the importance of performing randomized control trials, because despite promising data from observational studies, we should not assume that interventions are beneficial, even though they seem to be in observational trials. We need randomized control trials in order to confirm the findings. Okay, so I'd like to thank Dr. Tron for this discussion of, of this important uh, study. Uh, to the listener, to read the article uh, discussed in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, you can also stay uh, updated whenever new episodes are available. Thanks for listening and have a great day.